Acts 22, verse 1. Had it typed in two different places, the wrong one was wrong. Getting confused with myself. Acts 22, and we're going to start there, and then we're going to work our way through the end of chapter 23. So there's actually a lot to, to cover. We probably won't read all of the verses, but it's a, this is a, rather a, just a long narrative. In fact, this is a narrative that is going to just continue. I just kind of find some stopping points, although there's not a lot of instruction. There aren't really any sermons. There aren't uh, even even what we look at tonight. You notice uh, I didn't didn't uh, focus on big applications or anything like that, just because they're not there. We could probably pull something out, but then you run the risk of misinterpreting what the, the reason that these things these things are there. Some of the scriptures that we have are not necessarily to pull out lessons, I don't think, but to, to kind of fulfill the overall narrative of the story and tell us. I think one of the things is to, one of the points of this passage is to kind of just show us how we get from point A to point B, how Paul goes from Jerusalem to Rome, and he has to get there one way. And as we kind of talked about today, he probably had one way in mind, and it was probably pretty similar to how he had gone the first three times to spread the gospel, and yet God has a, a new, uh, not a new method of travel, but a new way to travel uh, as a prisoner and bound in, in the chains at some points and uh, uh, under, he's not going to go and start new churches, but he is going to be, be with some of the churches. He's going to be uh, under basically under house arrest for much of this time. You get a chance, uh, one of the days this week, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, I just sat down and started reading. And you, if you if you read from from where we're starting tonight or a little bit back, you can read through the rest of the of the book and pretty much get the, the rest of the story, as it were. Uh, so <clears throat> tonight, uh, we'll just go through the through the passage. There is one thing I want to pull out. I feel I feel kind of bad. I was telling my wife before we come over. I kind of feel bad because we're going to cover so much, and there's one little thing from one little verse, and it's like, well, where's the rest of the, these verses for? But as I said, uh, they're there to provide narrative, I believe. And then as if, if, if there are any questions or anything, any comments about what we talk about or, or uh, uh, something we shared this morning or something that's just on your heart, we'll, we'll take some time. I, I enjoyed last week hearing a little bit uh, from, from some of you about, uh, well, from any of you that spoke up. Not that I didn't like what some of you said and only some, but uh, we'll... we'll uh, if, if you do, don't feel don't feel like you have to, but uh, we'll we'll make that uh, available at the end. Let's start reading a little bit in verse number twenty-two of chapter twenty-two. Again, Paul has been uh, he was uh, seen in the temple. Just a little bit of background. I think we've all we're all pretty much familiar with it. Just kind of get our, our heads in this space. Paul was seen in the temple. He was fulfilling a vow. The Jews saw him. Uh, they realized that they were Ephesian Jews or they were Asian Jews, and so they realized that. Uh, he had been teaching what they felt was different than what the Jewish religion taught. And so they saw him as a hypocrite. They saw him as an enemy of the Jewish religion. And so they uh, gather a crowd to uh, indict Paul. They accuse Paul of, of basically treason against the state uh, of, of Israel. And they see they have seen him with an Ephesian, a Gentile, and they assume that he had been brought into the temple. So they are trying to hurt him. They're trying to kill him. Uh, the the uh, Roman commander Cla- uh, Lysias, uh, I think it's Claudius Lysias, uh, is uh, he came and rescued him, and as he was taking him into the uh, to tower there or the 
castle is what we read here uh, last week. It's the Tower of Antonia, I believe it was. Uh, he stopped him and said, do you speak Greek? And he said, Who, you know, aren't you the Egyptian that led the, led the, uh, the revolt? And of course he wasn't. And so he got permission to speak to the Jews. So then he begins to give quite a long discourse to the people that were just trying to kill him. Uh, these would have been many of the Jews that were uh, local to Jerusalem, many that had traveled for the, the uh, Pentecost and all of that. Uh, then when he gets to the point where he says that uh, God called him to a Gentile ministry, then they, they, uh, they lose it. Say so that we've heard enough, we don't want any more of that. And that's where we pick up there in verse number 22. And they gave him audience unto this word, and then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. And as they cried out and cast off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging, that he might know wherefore they cried so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, I always think of they put footblocks on Paul. Paul said to the centurion that stood by him, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. Then the chief captain came and said unto him, Tell me, art thou a Roman? He said, Yea. The chief captain answered, With a great sum obtained I this freedom. And Paul said, But I was freeborn. And then straightway they departed from him to, uh, they departed from him which should have examined him, and the chief captain also was afraid, after he knew that he was a Roman, and because he had bound him. On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty where, uh, wherefore he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Go into chapter 23 and, and uh, the plan. Lord willing, is to finish the, finish the chapter, but let's, uh, let's take a look at what's going on here. So uh, Paul is being interrogated here. We'll just call him the commander, uh, Commander Lysias. And uh, he is trying to figure out if this man broke any... Any, any laws. Specifically, has he broken any Roman laws? They don't care if he breaks any Jewish laws. They just kind of tolerate what the Jews do. He's looking to see if he has broken any laws contrary to what Caesar has established. And so, since he can't... Uh, I don't know if he understood the speech that Paul was giving on the steps, but uh, he decides that the best way to get... I don't think he knew who Paul was. He knew that he wasn't an Egyptian. But he didn't know who Paul was, and so he decided to interrogate him uh, the, the, the most effective way possible, and that would be to, to flog him or to whip him. And so they would have had this elaborate uh, set up for him. They would have beat confessions, really. They would, have, they would have beat Paul to figure out, are you innocent or not? Can you imagine uh, that, uh, that interrogation? It wasn't what we see on the, on the cop TV shows where there's a, a table and a light bulb hanging from the ceiling and uh, it's flickering, and there's two chairs, and you're sitting over there, good cop, bad cop. They just go straight to the torture. Tell us if you're innocent or not. He doesn't know if Paul has done anything. All he heard was some people getting mad at him, and so he decided, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to kill him. This form of scourging and flogging uh, likely, uh, historically, would have either permanently crippled Paul or would have killed him. So it's just very extreme, very brutal. Like You want to get to the truth, but I don't care what happens after I get to the truth. So maybe he assumes that Paul is guilty of something. He just wants to find out what. And so you're probably going to be punished. So we might as well just start it early. Or maybe what I'm what likely what I think is he's he's just a Jew. And so I don't really care what happens to this guy. He wasn't uh, until we find until he finds out that he's a Roman citizen. He wasn't important to Lysias in any way, shape, or form. 
And this was completely legal for them to do, uh, to beat non-citizens or beat um, uh, the guilty, really, to, uh, if, if, uh, if, they felt, if they felt necessary. So Paul reveals his Roman citizenship here, and it, by this question here, he's like, do you make it a practice of beating citizens? And this wasn't Lysias who was about to beat him, but it was one of the centurions, and the centurion realizes uh, we are in big trouble here because we possibly have a Roman citizen uh, stretched out before us, and uh, we're about to start whooping on this guy, and this is a huge crime. This is a, this is a serious problem, and so you can't, you, they, they couldn't do this. So he runs and he goes and gets Lysias, and he says, uh, we think this guy might be Roman, a citizen, and so they, they, they come back, and this uh, man, Lysias, wants to make sure that Paul is not messing around. It was a serious crime to, uh, it was fairly easy to become a Roman citizen, uh, but there and there were, from what I gather, there were different levels of citizenship. But it was a it was an offense to it was a crime to impersonate a citizen. You can't you can't pretend to be a citizen if you're not. It's a big deal to be a citizen. You can buy it, as we see in this passage, or you can be born into it, or you can be given citizenship as a as a kind of like a, a titles of nobility would be given out in, in England. Uh, and so uh, Paul is is uh, questioned by this guy. He's like, all right, well you're a citizen. He goes, I paid a lot of money for this. So don't be, uh, don't be taking this lightly. And Paul says, well, I was freeborn. Uh, one of the things that I, that I read about this was that Paul, by being born a Roman citizen, was actually of a higher status than Lysias, who would have bought his Roman citizenship. I, can't, I don't know a whole lot about all that, that, that background there, but uh, this, this troubled Lysias uh, in the very simple fact that he was possibly uh, breaking the law and going to get in trouble by his superiors because the Roman citizen... Uh, was was not supposed to be treated this way. Uh, Romans, uh, ro- the Roman law allowed non-citizens and slaves to be treated mistreated like this, but not any type of citizen. And it forbade to uh, it forbade the imprisonment and it forbade the beatings of of a Roman citizen without due process. It's a lot like you know what we enjoy as American citizens. Uh, I've got my rights, and you can't just start. You can't just accuse me and send me to jail without proving my guilt and the police can't just whip a confession out of you either you have rights and think about all of the the complications and all of uh, all of the things that would come later on if let's say the police came in here and just grabbed Evan and yanked him out of here and said we think he did something we're going to lock him up and then years later or days or you know even a night later well he didn't do anything wrong we were just we were like we just we didn't like the color of his shirt you know you're, you're in trouble and we find out that Chris ratted him out, and that's why they came. But uh, and then, then, yeah, then we, then we've got other problems on our hand. But uh, that, that, that's that's kind of what they enjoyed there. So being a Roman citizen was a, was a, a huge advantage, and one of the reasons why I believe Paul, God uh, brought Paul uh, up the way he did because Paul was able to go into places that uh, that the disciples, the original twelve, would not have been able to go because they didn't enjoy Roman citizenship. So Paul, in a way, had the best of both worlds. But on the other hand, Paul had the worst of both worlds because the Gentiles saw him as a Jew, and the Jews saw him as a Gentile, or saw him as a Roman. So uh, depending on the perspective, Paul had an advantage or a disadvantage here. But since, since Lysias couldn't beat a confession out of him, he, but he, he still thought that there was something to be found out, he decided to set up a an interrogation or a trial with the Sanhedrin council. This wouldn't have determined any legal any legal issues, 
But if they were the ones that had a problem with him, then he decided to have a, a, um, a, a trial with them. He was not necessarily in there, but he was nearby. And he was, and, and the, the intent, I believe, was for him to kind of figure out what's the deal. Why are these people so intent on killing this guy who is a Roman citizen? We better be very careful here. I don't think that he thinks that Paul is guilty or innocent, but he does know he's a citizen, so he's got to be treated with kid gloves. And so uh, they they got to be real careful here. So they, he takes him in, and so verse 30 of chapter 22, uh, all the way through verse 10 of chapter 23, Paul is being questioned by the Sanhedrin council. And so we'll read a little bit there in verse number uh, 1. Paul earnestly beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. Who sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they stood, and they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? And said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for as it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. So it's an interesting way that they start. It's almost like, are there any adults in the room? Because this is this is really really petty what they're what they're going through. But um, as Paul is standing there and he begins with this one statement here. I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, he's not saying, I've been perfect, I've always upheld the law, I've always done what I was supposed to do, but he's saying that I have lived in a good conscience up until this day. I wanted to take you to two places. The first is in uh, chapter 24 and verse 16. So if you want to uh, turn a page or two and get over to there, Paul says something very similar to that there in verse number 16. Herein do I exercise myself to have always a good conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. So he adds an extra phrase there. He lives in such a way that he's living in good conscience first towards God, but then towards man. So I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to live that that when I lay my head down on the pillow, I I know I didn't do anything contrary to what God, I didn't offend God, and I didn't offend any other people. That's a tough thing to do. I mean, have you ever gone, uh, found out that you offended somebody like six months ago, and you thought everything was cool? And then you realize, like, this has been a problem for a long time, and I don't even know what I did. I was talking with uh, someone yesterday, and or and I and I heard uh, how they they don't belong here or anything, but the, they offended somebody by simply asking a question, and they didn't they didn't even ask the question of the person that they offended. It was a, it was just a huge grapevine, but it's a really tough thing to do. But that's what Paul says. That's what I tried to do. Really, that's the fulfillment of the great great commandments. Loving God and loving your neighbor. I'm trying not. To, I'm trying to keep good, good relationship with God. Keep a good relationship with my neighbor. But then he says in First Timothy chapter one, uh, verse thirteen, he he adds a little bit to that. So when Paul is is speaking here to Timothy, he gives a little bit of his background here. Let me back it up to verse number twelve. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. So Paul kind of explains the other side of that. No, Paul wasn't perfect. Paul was hurting people. He said, I was doing it trying to have a good conscience before God. Because before God saved Paul, he thought he was doing God a favor. He thought he was on God's team. And then when Jesus came down and he says, why are you persecuting me? He realized, all right, I went on the wrong side this whole time. And he he switches teams, if you will. And he, he, he's doing what he can to do what God, what God is pleased with. And that's Paul's, that's Paul's motive. 
Now, if we go back to chapter 23, that's really all that Paul gets out uh, before they, uh, they, they smack him on the mouth. Can you put that picture up there so we just get a little, a little preview of what we're looking at, the Sanhedrin Council? This is uh, possibly what it would look like, but in real life, instead of uh, little stick figures. But So then they would have been standing there, and uh, Paul would have stood in the middle there, and then there is made up of 71, there was 71, 70, 72, 71 people, half of them on the one side, 35 on the one side, 35 on the other side, and then Paul would have stood in the middle, and then the high priest was sitting up there uh, at the beginning of it. And so Paul is standing there, and he's, he's on trial, if you will. It kind of looks like our, our uh, if you can kind of see a version of our courtroom there. Uh, he's, he's on trial, and he's, and he's going to basically uh, answer their questions, or he's going to state his case and hopefully come out innocent. And Paul has kind of done this, this before. He's talked to some of these people. Some, some commentaries even suggest that he might have known some of the people sitting in the, in the council because he would have uh, trained with them because he was trained by the Pharisees as well. And he says this one statement, the high priest uh, commands the people near him to smack him in the mouth. It's like, uh, like the, 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 it's the reaction that your mother had when she washed your mouth out with soap. Or maybe she smacked you on the mouth. I don't know. But uh, uh, it, it, you didn't like, he didn't like what he said. It was like he blasphemed. Uh, I, I, I don't appreciate this. And he smacks him in the mouth. Well, Paul didn't appreciate that very much. And so in verse number three, he's like, God shall smite thee, whited wall. This is very, not very good trash talking to me. I'm, I'm thinking, I can think of a, a hundred other things to say instead of whited wall. But what he's saying is actually using the scriptures uh, to uh, back up what he's saying. And he is, he is uh, calling the high priest out. We have to get. I'm careful here because when we get to the next verse, and he says that I didn't really know he was the high priest, um, it's difficult to understand what Paul meant by that. If that's what it looked like, <laughs> you know who the high priest is. So some people say that Paul didn't know because he was going blind. He talks about having the thorn in the flesh and poor eyesight, so he didn't know. Some say that he didn't know who Ananias was because the high priest was constantly changing. And then some say he knew he was, and he was being very. Uh, ironic in what he said. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, he uses the scripture to kind of point out the hypocrisy of the high priest here. So whether or not he is he is, uh, he knows that he's speaking to Ananias, the high priest, or whether or not he just knows that someone smacked him or he knows that someone commanded him to be smacked, he is calling out, uh, calling them out uh, as a whited wall. Now, uh, the, the high priest here, Ananias, uh, was a historically was a corrupt priest. Uh, he uh, history says that he was a quick-tempered man. You obviously see that he got his his uh, the man on trial. He's kind of presiding over this, and the man on trial makes one statement he doesn't like, and he starts he hits him. I mean that's that's not conflict management one on one. They don't they, they they teach you that real 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 quick. Hear the guy out. But also the the history says that he was he stole the tithes uh, of the people there. So I mean this man's not a great guy to begin with. And he commands uh, Paul to be to be smacked, and Paul calls him out on it. When Paul calls him a, a whited wall, he's referring to Ezekiel 13. And Ezekiel, we won't go there, but Ezekiel 13 talks about false prophets who misled God's people by saying, "Peace, peace," when there is no peace. And it was people who who were in grave danger, and the people and the men that God appointed them to be spiritual leaders said, "Everything's okay." When it wasn't, they needed to change their lives spiritually, and and 
and there and there they were called whited walls. It'd be it'd be it's the same idea as when we say we whitewash something, uh, an old crumbly broken down wall that that really is about to fall down that you just put a fresh coat of paint on to make it look better than it really is, and that's what that's what he calls. Uh, in Ezekiel, that's what these, these prophets then are called, and that's where Paul draws from to call this man a whited wall. He's saying, you, you're, you're corrupt inside, and you got, you look good on the outside, but you're, you're a horrible man. And, and, uh, referring back to Ezekiel 13 there, because by presuming the guilt of Paul and punishing him before even giving him a trial, Ananias was, uh, breaking the law himself. He was voiding the law. Now we will go to Leviticus 19 and see that. If you want to take your Bible there, or you can just uh, listen. I'll read it. Leviticus 19:15. This is uh, where God, uh, Paul, uh, uses the law to uh, to kind of help him state his case. He doesn't necessarily cite this, but he is definitely referring to this when he is uh, calling him a whited wall based on Ezekiel. In Leviticus 19:15, this is a part of the instruction there for. Uh, trials and, and things like that. It's, but it says here in verse number uh, 19, uh, 15, Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. So he's, he's saying, it's, this actually comes right around the time when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. But he's saying here, when you're, if you're going to judge somebody, if you're the judge, you can't show respect to persons there. Which means you've got to give them a fair trial. You've got to hear what they say. And if they're poor, if they're innocent, you've got to let them go. If they're rich but they're guilty, you still got you got to punish them. You can't you can't decide that you like the person or you don't like the person before you hear the truth. So it's the very very similar to our terminology today, innocent until proven guilty. Well, here Ananias said, "No, I'm punishing him now, and then I'll find out if he's innocent." And he had already in his mind decided. I think we can see based on his actions and where this is going to head that uh, they had no intention of proving Paul innocent. They were trying to kill this guy. Before they were brought into this official legal trial, they had already tried to kill this guy. And so uh, they're just trying to get a, get you know get an excuse to do this. And so Paul uh, kind of makes it, puts it out there and makes sure that everybody's aware, you have broken the law. Again, I'm on trial because you say I'm against the law and yet you yourself, by, by acting this way, break the law. And so... Uh, but these guys don't get it. They're like, you revile the high priest? You're going to talk to our high priest that way? And Paul says there in verse number 4, he says, uh, in verse number 5, sorry, he says, I wish not, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, he uses the law again. This is Exodus 22:28. Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Now some say, as I said, Paul really didn't know who Ananias was, uh, or that he couldn't see him or whatever. But I think, and, and the majority of what I've read, uh, says that he's speaking ironically here, basically saying, I didn't think that someone who so blatantly disregards the law could actually be the high priest. You mean that's the high priest, the one who has no regard for what God actually says? I didn't know that was the high priest, guys. Come on. And and, and that makes a little bit of sense in how in how it's going there. Uh, but he, he gets a chance to finally speak. Now, obviously, there's a lot more that goes on than what we read about. And Luke is kind of just kind of taking us through very quickly. But he says in verse number 6, Now that when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. So now Paul is finally given a chance to begin speaking his his case. Uh, history says that the, he had to, uh, the, the way that this procedure would work, he had to state why he was in there in the first place. Why are we, why are we coming together today? 
And so he, knowing that half of this group, at least or part of, you know, one portion of this group is Pharisaical, the other part are Sadducees, uh, he knew that there was a great division theologically within the room, and he recognizes that for that same theological disagreement, he is on trial. Because his, the whole point of his ministry is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why he says there in verse number 6, he says, the whole, the whole reason that, that I'm here is because the, the resurrection of the dead is being called into question. Now he knows the Pharisees believe in that. And Luke even goes in and explains it to us. He says in verse number uh, number 8, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So Sadducees didn't believe in any of that, but the Pharisees did. Uh, the Sadducees only believed in the five, I think they accepted only the first five books uh, as the scriptures. And then the Pharisees, obviously, they took it all, and they were the ones who tried to uh, hold to the law as closely as possible. Uh, one writer said that uh, tried to make a comparison that the Sadducees would have been the religious liberals of their day, and the Pharisees would have been those who were over-conservative. They were extremely right. They were the ones who tried to be as close to the law as possible, but in doing so added even more than was actually necessary. Now, this is how Paul had grown up. So Paul is very, very familiar with the law. He grew up with people who really held the law in, high, in a high place. And Paul realizes there's a huge difference here. It's that this side that I grew up with believes that there's a resurrection, resurrection of the dead. They do believe in the spirit world. They do believe in angels. And the Sadducees don't believe in any of this. And he says, all right, well, I'm here because the resurrection of the dead question is, uh, is, up, for, is up for debate. As soon as that gets gets dropped, uh, we see the chaos ensues. Verse number 7, And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. Verse number 9, There arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part rose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So these guys uh, these guys are saying here, you know, what if an angel really did speak to him? How, what are we going to say? Now, whether or not they agreed with his interpretation of what the angel told him, that's, that's a different question. But they said, well, if an angel spoke to him, then that, ex- that explains why he is sa- doing these things or saying these things. The Sadducees said there's no way that an angel could have spoke to him because there's no such thing. So there's, there's the big debate. Well, here it breaks down, and they begin to... I, I'm reading this, and in my mind, I've got this little movie going about what's going on in my mind, and I see them grabbing him, and they're like playing tug-of-war with Paul. Like, no. We're going to judge him. No, we're going to judge him. Because you read there in verse number verse number 10, and there, when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them. Wow, they went from smacking him in the mouth to literally tearing him limb from limb. Why? Because they didn't like the things he was preaching about. Some you know, The deacons gave me a, gave me a hard time this morning because I, I upgraded or downgraded, whichever we want to look at, as I, I had a computer bag, but now I, I have a little rolling suitcase because I'm putting a lot of books in there and taking them home. I had it, and they're like, oh, he's, he's going to try to make a getaway right after church today. He's got a suitcase packed and everything. But you know what? If you treated me like this, I probably would. I'd, just, if, you're gonna, if every time I got to say something, it was, uh, oh, we're going we're gonna to lynch him, uh, I, I can understand the uh, apprehension. And, and uh, it's, just, it's just crazy to think that this is how the church leaders, this is how the religious leaders acted. We don't like what he's saying. Let's kill him. Let's tear him limb from limb. I and mean, these guys are not, uh, where's the adults in the room? Well, Lysias comes down, God using uh, what we can consider a heathen, a pagan, to uh, rescue his man here. And he's going to continue to use them to protect him as he carries out his mission. That's a very interesting 
uh, an interesting thought there if you think about that a little bit. It says there in verse number uh, 10 there that uh, Lysias uh, uh, comes down, uh, the, chief, the chief captain there, and uh, it says it commanded the soldiers to go down to take him by force from among them, to bring him into the castle. So they, they take him back in there. And so then we, we, uh, we're done with that little scenario there. But right before it's over, that, little, that little section is over, we see in verse number 11, The night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. That's all that really, it's Jesus came to visit him in the night, and that's all that really is said there. And this is the one thing that I wanted to kind of pull out, because we see this kind of, we're going to see this, we've already seen it a little bit, we're going to see it continue. And that is essentially that Jesus came to tell Paul, keep it up, keep doing it. You've been doing a good job, I want you to keep doing it. What we notice Jesus didn't say is, it's going to get, it's going to be okay, Paul. It's going to get better. It's not always going to be like this. Because if he had, he'd been lying. Because it's going to get worse. It's going to get bad. He's going to be under house arrest. He's going to be running for his life. He's going to be, uh, he's going to be shipwrecked. He's, a lot of the crazy things that Paul uh, writes about in his epistles are yet to happen to him. Jesus, Jesus uh, didn't come to deliver him from prison, though he had done that before. Jesus comes and makes no promises that things are going to get better, but what he does come and say is, I still have plans for you. So you're going to keep going. You're going to keep carrying on. It's not going to look like what you think it's going to look like. But I still have plans for you, so it's going to keep going. And so though things don't look good, God was still in control. And though things weren't going as Paul had planned, they were going exactly as God had. God was going to use Roman authorities to help spread the gospel. I'm reading a book right now. I'm very slowly reading a book, and it's about early evangelism in the church. And, and they talked about some of the, the great uh, proponents and hindrances of evangelism. And one of the things that was mentioned was the Roman road system. The fact that the Romans came along and had this intricate, elaborate road system that went all over the world enabled the spread of the gospel in a way that is unmatched. Because it, it enabled travel in such a much better way than ever before. And now the gospel could, gospel could be carried all around the world. And as the Romans were conquering nations, and, and, bring that, and that, that in itself was a spread of the gospel. But here, God is going to use the Roman authorities to take a man all around the world, to the other end of the world, if you will, to, to preach to some big-name people. And all along the way, he's going to encourage uh, current believers, and he's going to no doubt make new believers. But here, but the thing I just want to point out, because we see this, we're going to see this for the rest of the book here, is that nothing from now on is going to go exactly as Paul had said. But every once in a while, God's going to come in. It happens on the ship later on. They're on the ship, and Paul's like, this is not a good idea. It's the wrong season to be on a ship right now. And they decided to go for it anyway. They get out there. They're in a storm. They all know they're going to die, and the Spirit comes, either Spirit or Jesus or an angel comes to Paul and says, listen, um, you're all going to make it as long as you stay on the ship. And Paul comes and tells them that. He goes, listen, if everyone stays on the ship, we'll all be okay. Now, that meant they're not going to die because that ship did wreck. And they all floated to shore and they found that island, but everybody survived. Now, that's not the way you want to be saved, right? To continue through the storm, to have the ship wreck, to be floating on driftwood until uh, you, you land on some deserted island only to be bitten by a snake. I mean, this is, this is Paul's life, though. But this is exactly how God had planned for him to go. Now, it's, it's a very short little section here, but it's actually the rest of the, of the, of the verses here. And this is, I won't, I won't read all of this, but in verse number 12 to 35, Paul comes and talks to Governor Felix. So he's kind of gone up the, the food chain here. 
uh, to the next highest person. In verse number 12, when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were they were more than 40 which made this conspiracy, and they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under the great curse, and we, that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore, you with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow. So they wanted to repeat this, uh, what they had just done with the council, as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever we, he come near, are ready to kill him. So they, this, this is an assassination uh, plot here. And these 40 men have, uh, I was reading, as I told you, I was reading this earlier, and I chuckled because I got uh, a couple of chapters away, and it had been like two years. And uh, these guys are still questioning Paul. I'm like, well, I wonder if these guys have eaten. Because uh, you promised that you wouldn't. They place, to, to make an oath like this means that you are placing yourself under a curse if you don't fulfill your oath. And that's what they're doing. They're saying, God judges if we don't kill that guy. Uh, we're not going to eat until we do. And I imagine, who is the first guy to eat? All right, I guess we're not getting it. Uh, <laughs> you feel like a loser, right? But that's what, these guys, that's what these guys have done. Well, Paul has a nephew that lives in Jerusalem. He hears of the plot. He uh, tells... Um, he tells them, uh, tells Paul about it. Paul sends him up to Lysias, and he tells Lysias about it. Lysias decides that uh, Paul is not safe in Jerusalem. He can do no more than what he's already done, so he sends him up to Felix. Not my problem anymore. Plus, if he's a Roman citizen and he gets killed while he's under my custody, I'm going to be in trouble. I'll send him up, uh, send him up, and let him be someone else's problem. So he decides to send him to Felix in Caesarea. So verse number. Uh, he's, we go to verse number uh, 23. And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, spearmen 200 at the third hour of the night. And provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. Now he writes a letter, in verses 25 uh, down to verse number 30, and he tells them what happened. He kind of sigh, he shades that story a little bit, make him look a little bit more like a hero. Because this is not exactly how it happened, but he's telling it like he was—he's—he's Johnny on the spot, and uh, Felix uh, better promote him soon because he's—he's been paying attention here. But uh, Felix gets him in verse number uh, 30, 33 there. Who, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, had presented Paul also before him. When the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was and what he understood that he was of Cilicia. and when he understood that he was a Cilicia, apparently he said, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in here's judgment. So they send word back down to Jerusalem. All right, those of you who have a problem with Paul, you come up to Caesarea, and they do come. And later on, they're going to keep coming. They're making this big trip. I think it's about 70 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And they're going to make this trip so that they can go and accuse Paul. These guys are bitter. You'd think somewhere along that 70-mile journey, you're like, why are we doing this, guys? He's gone. Let's just forget it. And several of the Romans were like, why are we doing this? If you keep reading, they, they're, they're kind of wondering, scratching their heads the whole time. Why is this guy on trial? But for years, he's, he's going to be under house arrest until finally ends up, he's, he finds a, a, a appealing to Caesar there. But that's the end of chapter 25. And this is, like I said, this is the... This is the way that God is going to carry out this new stage of Paul's life. Not what Paul wanted, not what Paul anticipated, but uh, on the government's dime, Paul is going to carry out the gospel. No longer is he going to have to make tents to support himself. He's going to eat prison food, but at least he doesn't have to pay for it. 
He's going to go on their boats rather than figure out his own transportation. And he's got some new jewelry at times uh, with the, uh, the bonds and the chains and things like that. But uh, that, that's, uh, we're going to stop there and then continue in chapter 20, uh, uh, whatever I said, chapter 24 next Sunday night.